My son likes to eat approximately 8,000 times per day. <laughs> He's very large. Really? He's like 95th percentile. And you can't, you can't tell by my voice, but yeah. I'm, a, I'm an average size human. He, he eats a similar amount for breakfast as I do, <laughs> if not more. I don't chug a whole eight ounce of whole milk on the side. <laughs> Welcome back to the show. I am Lisa Bodner, and I'm really thrilled that you're here. Go check out our social media accounts, Instagram and Twitter, at ShinyEpiPeople. And of course, share the show with your friends, please. If you'd like to support it via a Patreon, you can find us there, patreon.com slash ShinyEpiPeople. Today, I am speaking with Jay Downing. Jay earned their MS from the University of California in San Francisco and their PhD from UC Berkeley. Jay is an assistant professor in the Oregon Health and Science University, Portland State University School of Public Health. Their research explores how policies and social safety nets shape access to and quality of health care for gender and sexual minorities and other minority populations. Jay and I talk about setting boundaries, specifically when it comes to service responsibilities, the challenges and exciting aspects of doing research on gender and sexual minority populations, becoming a parent during the pandemic, the complicated path to second parent adoption that Jay and their wife are taking, and much more. I hope you enjoy this chat. Hi, Jay. Welcome to the show. Thanks. Happy to be here. I'm so happy you agreed to do this. How long have you been living in Portland? Been here two years now. What are your favorite Portland things? I guess I really like being able to get out into nature really mm-hmm. quickly. Still have like the small city vibe, but be able to drive and get out to the mountains and go hiking. I spent the last or a good part of my life in California and the Bay Area and There's just always so much traffic to get out to good hikes. A million people on everything. I think my favorite thing about Portland is that there always seem to be kind of the right amount of people at events or bars. Just enough that you didn't feel like, oh, I'm going to leave. There's not enough people here. Not too many that you had to touch them or, you know. (laughs) Right. Except for brunch. There's always long lines here for brunch. So I don't do that. Portlanders are big brunchers. So, Jay, one of the things that I was really struck with when you and I just had a brief chat was how strategic you are about protecting your research time. This is, (laughs) you just sort of made a face (laughs) that I don't know how to interpret, but it sort of was like, maybe not really. Is that what you were trying to say? Oh, my my face was, I I was just curious where you're going to go with this. You know, I think that protecting time is something Mm. that is really hard, especially for early career people. And I was wondering if you could just sort of talk about that at first, like how you learn to protect your time. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, when I originally thought about academics, I saw everyone, you know, working all weekends and all nights and just constantly overwhelmed. And I thought, that doesn't sound like a very fun life. Again, I'm only four or five years into my career, but um, I really attempted to preserve my weekends and nights as much as possible because, at least for me, I need to rest my brain in order to get good thoughts. And the only way to do that is to be like extremely organized. And I definitely go through phases where I start out and I have a great grand organizational plan. And then a couple of weeks or months later, it falls apart. But then I go through it again. And I try to be gentle with myself and say, okay, well, the intention is there. But yeah, I think what you were getting at is it's about protecting your time and trying to understand, like, do I really need to be at this meeting? But I think a big thing is around service is that, you know, we get asked to do a lot of service-related tasks. Sometimes they're they're fun. They're enjoyable. Um, not always. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, uh-huh. um, okay. <laughs> Sometimes they can be fun. I mean, even not just for your uh, academic department. I'm talking about other things. Like, I'm part of this uh, committee um, where they're trying to develop standard recommendations for sexual orientation and gender identity to be used in Portland. And they have these long meetings that are so fun, but it just takes up so much time um, that that's sort of been one thing that's been a challenge to attend. If I have more time, I can attend, you know, other sort of community-based organizational meetings that are so relevant to my work and Mm. outreach and uh, establishing trust in the local community, particularly around my area in transgender health research. But those sort of things, how does that fit into getting a promotion? Where does that fall? And it ultimately tends to be a small portion of how you're evaluated to get promoted. Do you find that in general, it's a thing that you just often have to like really put a boundary on? Yeah, I think you have to put pretty strict boundaries on it. And so I moved from a tenure track nine-month appointment job at University of South Carolina. And this job is a non, they don't have tenure um, at OHSU uh, specifically, which is the side I'm on, but it's a soft money position. So 5% of my time is technically for service. And that includes everything from reviewing journal articles to any kind of service. And I certainly spend more than 5% of my time on service. So just trying to use that line whenever I can. It's just, this is what I have. Maybe I can you know, squeak through a little more time. And yeah, that's something that's that's a challenge, I think. I think I'm on the, in the spectrum, it's easier for me to say no, but I think, you know, I'm not a straight white male. And so I think that the sort of position of privilege, like typically a lot of women and POC folks are tend to be doing more of the service labor in departments and mm-hmm. you know particularly as they're, they're ramping up trying to diversify trying to be like oh we need to involve you know a representative from the sexual and gender minority people and a BIPOC person well let's look around we have approximately two and two of that in the whole school wow. um, so how are we compensating these folks for their their time and their labor um, it's great that you want those voices heard, but how do you involve them in, in that? Being responsible for for speaking on behalf of a incredibly diverse population in and of itself has got to be really challenging. Do you think that 
faculty recognize this at all when they're asking? <laughs> no, uh, I don't. I don't really think so. I yeah. Think. I mean, certainly there's some people that have insight into that, and it usually comes from you know other people who have experienced marginalization in some way. Mm-hmm. And certainly, even cisgender women have experienced that in, in higher ed uh, as well. Our our school is actually is putting something into place for the very first time. I'm not sure how it's going to work, but it's a good new model, and there's going to be specific grants or you know, to buy a part of your time to do extra labor, particularly around issues of racial and social justice, which a lot of our faculty engage with unpaid regularly. So I think that that's the thing, like compensating folks for their time. And that's not it. It's not just about compensation, but I think that's a good start. And we'll see how this model works. I'm just, Mm -hmm. I am happy that they are trying something new. Something else that you wanted to talk about today is assessing gender in more than just a binary way. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, now is kind of a time where folks are trying to think about this a little bit more, particularly at our institutions. One example of this is that for an internal grant at uh, my institution, OHSU, there was a women's health funding grant. And I reached out to them. I said, I'm doing trans health research. Would it be trans women or Uh, Does it have to focus on female sex assigned at birth? And they said, wow, no one's asked about that before. Let's look into that. Let's think about it. And very similar conversation I had with the folks, um, part of something called Women and Academic Medicine, I think is the name of it. But this the same kind of uh, question came up because they were offering awards for, for faculty. And some of the language said woman, some of them said female. And I said, you know, identify as gender non-binary. So what applies to me? Am I eligible for female or woman? Mm. I ended up not applying, but I just wanted to ask them the question. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I like that. (laughs) (laughs) And they were also like, whoa, yeah, that's a great point. And they they work quickly to, you know, try to be inclusive of non-binary and then folks and sort of starting the conversation around maybe changing their name. And when, you know, when there's an award for you know, a woman in STEM to make it more inclusive. What should we say? Because I don't want to fuck this up either. Right. I think that's been one of the main criticisms. Oh, the language is too challenging. Oh, uh uh-huh. That's the thing, right? Anytime something is new and different, the language around it will be more challenging. So I don't know if I fully have the answer, but Mm -hmm. I think, uh, you know, some folks suggested something around uh, gender equity in STEM or something, and then mm-hmm. someone brought up, I don't want this to seem like an LGBTQ organization. <laughs> and I was like, well, come on, that's a common misconception that we're not really talking about social, uh, sexual orientation right now. And then they said, well, we want to focus on issues that are for women, you know, particularly like having children and pregnancy. I said, well, <laughs> I actually just had a baby. Yeah. You know, what always comes up in these conversations is is valid is that a lot of cisgender women have been and continue to be marginalized in, in higher ed and men are occupying at least the professor level status positions. And so um, I think this organization, um, like at a lot of schools of public health, want to band together around being a woman. And uh, I think really what these folks are concerned about is is around gender equity and moving the language to being around, we want gender equity, 
across all genders and not just for cis women. I think if it feels like it's cis women sometimes feel like they're being erased in these conversations. Um, it's not in, in us, meaning like the gender non-binary, gender queer community versus cis women. It's all of us are trying to, you know, live in a world that has gender equity. I'm not a BIPOC person, but I think that folks are trying to search for equity. Mm-hmm. It's not an us versus them. I think folks at the NRH are starting to think a little bit more about that. What are health differences that are related to one's sex assigned at birth or, or sex? And even folks that say biological sex. Well, what does that mean? There's so much variation. Or is it about something about gender that is causing our health disparity? Is it the way that, you know, we were socialized in our gender that's causing this health disparity? Is an important exposure the amount of time that someone has either been out or kind of themselves identified as being queer? Is that important? And do people study it? Maybe that's silly to ask. I, this is I a was... great question, of course, asked by an epidemiologist. <laughs> So just to take a step back, I think the fun thing about doing sexual and gender minority research is that not only am I helping folks like myself, but the questions and research problems are are nuanced and challenging. And so how do we think mm-hmm. about those? So yeah, your question is is basically, how do we measure sexual orientation and gender identities? And what does that mean in terms of exposure? If I'm coming out at a time, well, what does that mean? Were you actually queer before that and you Mm -hmm. just not saying it and that could be worse for your health there's some longitudinal large surveys that have collected sexual orientation over time okay a lot of folks uh switch their sexual orientation some go identify as queer and then straight and then so it's not just a, a linear thing by any means so is it the most proximate exposure that would cause that and so i think it it really requires thinking about your particular research question. Are you using the sexual orientation as a proxy for stigma? Hmm. We're really trying to tease that out. And the big challenge in this field is just the absence of the population level data. I mentioned a few surveys have it, but those surveys often result in too small sample sizes. Mm -hmm. And the questions aren't asked in a way that are really relevant You know, a lot of terminology is also changing in the queer Mm. world. Younger folks might use queer, older folks use lesbian. So if you're looking at lesbian versus queer, you might be, you know, those folks are older and maybe or maybe live more in rural areas. So they have multiple, Mm. you know, intersecting exposures um, that might affect their health. So this is why this research is fun to think about and also (laughs) very challenging. A lot of us have turned to race, ethnicity, disparities, literature for some help. How have you dealt with some of these issues before? But those experiences are very different from a Mm -hmm. methodological standpoint. Sexual orientation changes over your life course. Um, Again, you could say someone's race, ethnicity could also change over their life course and across place and time. So there are some parallels to it. Typically, there's no within family, everyone's not necessarily a sexual minority. I think the biggest parallel is that, you know, when we're studying this stuff, just like when we're studying race, we don't actually care about race. We care about race as a proxy for racial stigma and racial discrimination. And the same thing is we're talking about that for sexual orientation is that focus on discrimination, not their sexual orientation themselves. I'm getting on my uh, academic 
Pat. That's okay. No, put it on. Um, <laughs> is it different if you were studying risky behaviors, then it's you're kind of looking at a different exposure? Exactly. The three dimensions, I think it is, sexual orientation, sexual behavior, and sexual identity. Okay. Those are different, right? Because that's a big thing, particularly around the HIV world. So a lot of men who have sex with men who identify as straight are most at risk for HIV, for example. So, mm-hmm. you know, if we're just doing outreach to gay men, that might miss um, a large mm-hmm. percent of population. I'm so happy that you're willing to teach me and listeners. Thanks for caring. <laughs> Switching gears a smidge. Jay, you and your wife have a son. Yep. He just came back from his nanny chair and he's going for a nap right now. Yay. Yep, he's still on the two nap a day cycle. Oh, you're, I loved the two nap a day. That was so good. Those were good times. Anyway. <laughs> and then when they give up the nap, oh my gosh, those were just like, no, what happened to my break? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I guess I'm speaking the right audience, but I don't know the counterfactual here. So uh, I don't know what it would be like to be. It's kind of crazy, though. I don't know what it would be like really to be a parent not in the pandemic. Uh, Leo was like two and a half months. So I was just emerging from the haze, if you will, the first round of the haze. Um, And then, yeah, uh, the pandemic set in. So, you know, we have had a very unique situation along with the other cohort of folks born in the same time mm-hmm. but we don't know what it's like to go over hang out with other parents while you know and say is this normal for the baby to be doing this is this yeah so that's something that we certainly feel like we missed out on and that's that's been hard and challenges finding child care has mm-hmm. i think has been a challenge for everyone and particularly during the pandemic even my a lot of my uh, coworkers who had babies around the same time they just were going to keep the baby at home with them and that that's hard to do and um yeah. you know you need a little bit of a break and we're only doing a part-time uh nanny share cuz so my wife uh takes care of him she launched a physical therapy business during the pandemic which has been wow. also challenging you know there are obviously lots of benefits some of us have just seen each day looking very much like the next yes. with, the, <laughs> with the young baby at least you're like wow he didn't do that last week something yeah. changed <laughs> yeah oh that's so cool right you have all those changes to look forward to yeah so that that has been the plus yeah I wasn't even thinking that the only time you've been a parent is during the pandemic oh yeah yeah Leo actually went to the grocery store for the first time this weekend <laughs> Put him in the shopping cart and he just looked around silent, you know, and we thought, yeah. like, I've never been anywhere this yeah, big. Said, you know, this is something that you would do with your baby is, okay, let's at least go get, you know, a, yeah, let's go something to at the store. Let's walk <laughs> you around while I get something done. And now it's yeah. like, okay, you know, he's going out for a nap. So then my wife goes grocery shopping and then I'm on duty. I'm like, but hopefully he doesn't wake up. So I'm on yeah, a meeting. Yeah. What meetings can I move at this time so that if he does wake up, it's just, you know, my colleague that I, I'm friends with. Sure. It's fine versus a serious meeting. And yeah, the, the challenges, I think, are, are fun. <laughs> you and your wife have had to learn so much 
about guardianship, of legal guardianship in same-sex couples. I'm sad to say I didn't know anything about this before. So what would you like to share about that experience? One thing that I thought when I started this research, this was before I was a parent, I thought that the birth certificate was a legal document um, of parentage, is that if you're on the birth certificate, you are, in fact, the parent. But it turns out that's not how the court of law looks at it. So in order to be on a birth certificate in most states, you have to either be married to the birth parent or biologically related to the child. For same-sex couples currently in most states, if, for example, so I, I birthed our child, if, for example, I, Jessica and I want, got mad at each other and I took Leo mm-hmm. across state lines, then, you know, it's possible that the courts would say, okay, no, Jay is the only parent, Jessica is not the parent, or, you know, grant me more rights. So a lot of same-sex couples are uh, suggested they should use second parent adoption for their child. So some people are, are like, well, you know, this is the same as, say, I'm a straight man. I married my wife and she has kids from a previous marriage. Mm-hmm. I adopted them. Well, that's actually a little bit of a different that's step parent adoption. That's a little bit okay. different than second parent adoption. At least this, this is my law speak that I'm still not great at. What's interesting is that our university offers the benefit of $5,000 for adoption, but the baby has to not be biologically a part of your family before in order to get that benefit. So I asked them if we could use this benefit, and they said, this is not what the IRS says. And I looked at the IRS laws, and they said, actually, if you're in a domestic partnership, you can use this benefit. So I, you know, sometimes I'm fresh, and I I said, well, we were in a domestic partnership before. (laughs) Are you saying that you should recommend for all employees to be in a domestic partnership in order to access this benefit? They didn't like that comment. Um, I don't know why. It was, you know, it wasn't rude or anything. I like it. I like a gentle, sassy pushback. Yeah, it was, it was sassy. It was. It's, that's not typically how policy changes are made. That's what I, what I learned from that experience. The sassy pushback, not yeah. effective. Okay. But I mean, ultimately, right, like, um, I, you know, we could afford to do this process, but a lot of folks, you know, can't afford this process and so skip it. And thus, the legal protections for the child are, are not great in that situation. So some lawyers um, that I've spoke to are trying to change this at the state level, and mm-hmm. we won't need to do this adoption process. Wow. But this is what's been going on for a long, long time, uh, even before gay marriage. Okay, you ready to talk about some fun stuff? Definitely. Okay. Do you have a memory that you wish you could go back and experience again for the first time? So I did the Peace Corps when I was like 22 or 3. Okay. And I just remember for the first time, like going to my site and everything just looked so foreign. And Where was it? Uh, in Morocco. I don't, I guess I'll sound like a little bit of a hippie, but like uh, a profound sense of how small I was in the world and 
how different things were, but then how much the same we are. And I just, I do wonder how I'd experience that today. And would I see that in the same way? Yeah, I really like that memory. I thought you were basically going to say like the birth of my son or which would have been fine answers. I don't want to go back there. (laughs) I remember that all too well. (laughs) That was a lot of pain. What's something you're embarrassed to admit that you like? People are often surprised that I'm, I really like rom-coms, you know, romantic comedy movies. <laughs> okay, I'm totally shocked. <laughs> okay, I'm really into them. Uh, yeah, so. Oh, really? Yeah, it's my, you know, it's just, they're so nice. All the kinds, you know, even extremely heterosexual ones like Bridgerton. <laughs> That was great. I loved Bridgerton, Jay. Yeah, that's, loved it. that falls in that genre. You know, <laughs> Jane the Virgin. Like, I love Jane the yeah, Virgin. They're so, they're so sappy, it hurts. But why not? You know. Okay. Yeah, I love that. Let's not be embarrassed by that. <laughs> Especially Bridgerton. I was expecting there to be more queer relationships in that. That's see- probably season two. They're trying to like, they're really trying to sell it. They're like, the Duke is so hot. Let's start with the Duke. Right. Let's, let's just focus on his abs again. That's right. It's like, yes. all, the, all the men want to like be him. Like everyone yes. wants to, you know, everyone yeah. loves them. Okay. Do you use emojis when you text? <laughs> I do, but I think I have like three emojis that I use. Okay. What are they? You know, the one that's like the teeth. <laughs> I don't know if that's. Like the cringe one that's like, Yeah, the uh... cringe. I do that one. The laughing with tears uh-huh. and then the thumbs up. Okay. It's very vanilla. I think I started thinking about overthinking emojis. I didn't want to like show that I'm communicating like a teenage girl, um, <laughs> but I, <laughs> I like the same shows as them. Really? <laughs> uh, Thank you so much, Jay, for taking so much time to talk to me. Thank it's you. so good to get to know you. This was a lot of fun. Experiences of vulnerability around sharing about yourself and, you know, Brene Brown. Brene Brown, man. I hear you. Be vulnerable. Be brave. <laughs> kind of make fun of her, but I kind of love her. It's like, Let's talk about shame. That's how we get rid of it. Just bring it to light. <laughs> Did you see that really bad movie, Wine Country? With like a whole bunch of... Like older women. Like Tina Fey. Yeah. Like... And uh-huh, then, like, yeah. Brene Brown. Do you, you remember Brene Brown makes the appearance? She's like, hi, I'm Brene. And they're all like, oh, my God, it's Brene. <laughs> yeah, you got to rewatch it for that part.